Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, hot lava, fire, combustibles, and such. And today, we're going to be getting all the way in to the debut solo album by the late George Michael, 1987's Faith. In this moment, it's hard to believe that George Michael's faith is 31 years old. Even more incredulous that George Michael died before being able to celebrate a milestone for his heat rock. Faith, released the day before Halloween in 1987, was a star-making turn that was also a solo mission. Solo, obviously, because the Wham! years were behind him, but solo also because all of the songs on the album were written by George Michael and all of the music was composed by George Michael, 10 tracks of fire that covered a variety of themes. He didn't just step out of a shadow of a pop group, he leapt out of it and leveled all the way up. 25 million albums sold, Grammy Gold for Best Album of the Year, an AMA for Favorite Soul and R&B Album, and a feature on the soundtrack to a $300 million film. What we learned about George Michael on Faith was that beyond being a sex symbol, He was a sexual, sensual being, a man who was inspired lyrically by intimate connections, shout out to Clear, and had a desire for intimacy. I want your sex. I want your love, he sang. He was allowing us a glimpse of how he loved, who he loved, and who he was, and he used drum lines, synth, and layered arrangements to do it. Maybe he'd been hiding in plain sight, but then the whispers got too careless, and they pushed him out of his comfort zone and into being a recluse. But for a moment in 1987, he was there for us, and he was there with us sonically, a father figure, sunning a lot of pop music's other children. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith was the album pick by today's guest, music writer, and fellow podcaster Chris Melanfi. I first came across Chris's byline when he began writing the Wisest Song Number 1 column for Slate Magazine, where he tried to dissect the route that various hits took on their way to the top. And once I got to meet Chris, I recognized a kindred spirit in unabashed musical nerdery, and that's why I was beyond hyped when, a year and a half ago, Slate launched Chris's incredible monthly hit parade podcast, where each episode serves as the best hour-long pop music history lesson you could ever ask for. We've been wanting to get Chris onto Heat Rocks in like forever, and we'd like to thank Slate for making their New York studio available to Chris to help tape this today. Chris Melanfi, welcome to Heat Rocks. Oliver Wong, thank you so much, and hey to Morgan Rhodes. Hey, How are you guys? good. So Chris, more than I think any other guest that we've had on, you seem to have spent the most time wringing your hands and agonizing over what album to talk about, and you ended up (laughs) landing on George Michael's Faith. Why him and why this album? I mean, besides the fact that I, I have loved this album for more than 30 years now, 
And besides the fact that I've done a couple of deep dives into the backstory of George Michael, whose career is really interesting. I did a, since you brought up my uh, writing and my podcast, I did a whole podcast episode uh, about George Michael, actually comparing him to the career of Elton John. Yeah, uh, The parallels there are manifold if we want to talk about that. And I also did uh, an interesting article for Slate, and, and this was a little tragic, I'll be honest. I wrote an article in May of 2016, that date is important, talking about George Michael's career in the wake of the release of the movie Keanu, uh, the Key and Peele movie. He, he didn't act for the movie, but he does appear in it in multiple ways, and his music is all over it. And um, I use that as an occasion to talk about George Michael's interesting history as a crossover star. Mm. And um, the reason this was all sad was that, you know, of course, George Michael died, I believe, seven months after I wrote the article. Yeah. Um, when he died on Christmas Day, no joke, Christmas Day yeah. 2016, Slate actually republished the article. And, and I, I got all these appreciative tweets and and. Some people were saying, oh, man, it really hurts to get to the end of this article, because at the very end, I say, isn't it nice that George Michael is being reappreciated and he's alive mm. to see his reappreciation? By the way, when I wrote that, Prince had died five, six weeks earlier. Like I said, it's an album I have loved um, since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have been fascinated by George Michael's career as a hit maker, wearing my chart nerd hat, and <laughs> as a singer, songwriter, multi instrumentalist i mean he's kind of a self-contained unit uh he produced this album and a lot of what you hear on faith is him Hmm. um there are not a ton of outside musicians there are no guest vocalists per se uh some people got involved later uh including some uh high profile remixers which we can talk about but yeah but really faith in and of itself is this sui generis mass appeal top 40 pop masterpiece and Mm. and i guess that's why it fascinates me yeah my coming to george michael started with wham Um, i'm not going to get into uh birth dates or anything but (laughs) i was around i I was around at the time let me say it like that chris and uh my friend twirled baton and she was so dope at it that baton became cool because heretofore twirling baton was was whack But she twirled baton in our school gymnasium to wake me up before you go. And Mm. everyone was like, yo, okay, first she's dope with the baton, but also that jam, though. Wake me up. And so that was sort of my introduction to George Michael and Wham. And then, of course... Careless Whisper, you know, having crushes and dedicating that song, trying to sing it. And so Mm -hmm. my introduction to him was as part of a duo. And in thinking about this and sort of preparing for the conversation, I was like, I just don't know. There's probably a list of people, but I can't think. No one else comes to mind automatically who's had a bigger breakout solo career after leaving a group in my recent memory. But outside, once he did this album, it sort of obscured everything. I thought about Wham! or my association with Wham! and I thought it couldn't get better than that because Wham! had some hits. And so for me, he started out as as a pop star. Um, It Mm -hmm. wasn't until Faith where I saw him as, you know, as a soul singer. But that was my introduction to him, high school. He was cool then Mm -hmm. as a part of Wham! He was cooler um, as as Mm. a solo guy. How about for you, Chris? Were you a Wham! fan to start with? I was. uh... Wham! came out, you know, they broke in America later than they broke in England. Um, One interesting tidbit that I talked about in that Slate article I wrote was that uh, 
George Michael, when he and Andrew Ridgely, the duo known as Wham, broke in 82, 83, uh, George Michael was rapping a lot. Uh, yeah. George Michael is, as an artist, what makes him fascinating as a crossover figure, to t- touch on what Morgan just touched on, is that he had a fascination with American R&B, American mm. hip-hop, from the jump. So what makes Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, his breakthrough in America, kind of funny is it's probably the most white bread hit that Wham ever had. Yeah. I mean, it's so up with people, literally down to the video, including, you know, the Choose Life t-shirts that they're wearing. Um, But it's a total jam, to your point. I loved it, Uh, even though it blocked Purple Rain from going to number one in the Hot 100. No joke. First piece of chart trivia today. Um, And um, what then happens after uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go is that George Michael takes a left turn with Careless Whisper, the, the the follow-up single, that I'm not sure anybody really saw coming. I mean, I think there are some people who regard it as this schlock classic with that saxophone solo, but it's also basically a soul ballad. I mean, it's got mm-hmm. elements of Sade in it. It's yeah. got elements yeah. of, you know, classic R&B in it. Uh, that song, for the record, and its follow-up, Everything She Wants, both Wham! hits, uh, crossed over to the R&B charts. Uh, they, they were, I believe, top 10 or top 15 R&B singles in right. Billboard. So very early on, even before Faith, George Michael is crossing over R&B in America by his second single in America. And then Faith, to your point, Morgan, takes it all the way. In fact, really the setup for Faith going into 1987 is like one dropped breadcrumb for the R&B audience after another. He has a number one pop, number five R&B hit early in 87, a duet with Miss Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. May she rest in peace. Yes. I knew you were waiting for me. Yep. That's his technically first number one single of his solo career, although he's name checked on Careless Whisper for reasons that are too complicated to get into. So he has this semi-solo number one hit with Aretha and then he drops Faith. And even as they were uh, releasing Faith, this is a little remembered detail, but the song Hard Day, oh which God. is not one of the bigger hits, great jam, hit. was released quietly as a 12-inch and promoted only to black radio in America. Uh, it made number 21 on the R&B chart. This is kind of in between the first couple of singles of the of the album. So really early on, George Michael and you know his team at CBS Columbia Records were very openly marketing George Michael to a crossover audience, white and black listeners. So I have two follow-ups based on this, and one goes back to Morgan's point around the transition between Wham! and then George Michael going solo. And Mm -hmm. I think in hindsight, we tend to assume when someone who was part of a group and then becomes as big or even bigger as a solo artist that it was almost destined. But really, the landscape is littered with artists who did not have successful solo careers after leaving Mm -hmm. a a very big band. I mean, looking back on this now, was there clear hints that George Michael was going to be big solo or was there skepticism or confusion as why would you leave Wham in order to go off on your own? Who's going to want to listen to a George Michael solo album? So that's one question. My second question, Chris, goes back to this point about his George Michael's crossover appeal. 
Were there other examples of other artists in that same era that were able to make that sort of transition from being largely thought of as white pop artists, but still dabbling enough in soul that when they blew up, they were able to capitalize on that crossover appeal? Those are all really good questions. To the first point about the solo career, I mean, it so easily could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about Wham! is that Wham! It's almost, I, I, one of you made this point earlier, Wham! is almost folded into George Michael's biography now because it is obvious to everyone, and not to you know rag on Andrew Ridgely, <laughs> who actually, believe it or not, co-wrote Careless Whisper. The guy was... Right. Far less talented than George Michael, but he wasn't 100 percent talentless. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I know. I know. It sounds harsh anyway. But I mean, there are people who almost treat Wham as this sort of dress rehearsal for George Michael's right. solo sure. career, which it largely is, you know. Um, but Wham were beloved, especially in England. There's an in-between album. There was a, a follow-up Wham album called The Final in the, the UK. Mm. It was called Music from the Edge of Heaven here in America. And you could already hear George Michael testing his wings on more R&B-oriented joints like uh, Battle Stations or, you know, uh, I'm Your Man. And, you know, so there was like a final wave of Wham hits. In England, that was treated as an event. Like this group that had only been together for three albums but had dominated the British charts in the mid 80s was breaking up and it it sort of served as a runway for George Michael's solo career. But in America, George Michael was not necessarily guaranteed to pop the way he was almost preordained to be a superstar in England. So you're absolutely right that this was not necessarily going to, you know, go to the stratosphere. He really had to bring it on this album. In interviews uh, surrounding the album, I, I was going back and looking at some of some of the interviews he did, he openly discussed how he was paying close attention to American pop, American mm. R&B, American mm. trends. Mm-hmm. It's like George Michael had his ear to the ground of American radio and American pop. And without ripping off or aping anything, I mean, he's absolutely writing his own stuff. He's producing an album that was very of the moment um, to the point that by 1988, uh, Faith is the number one album of 1988 it's the bestseller which means it outsold bad um the Mm. if you look at the global sales figures now 30 years later michael jackson is michael jackson and when you put pile in global sales figures bad has sold something like 30 million copies worldwide and that gives it a higher total in faith but in america especially in 87 88 george michael was absolutely one with more weeks at number one higher platinum count not more number one singles because bad had so many but it it was really going toe-to-toe with the biggest solo male pop star in america and Mm. then on some fronts winning which is Mm -hmm. kind of amazing yeah um as for crossover and and where george michael stood on that continuum when i did my research and i already had some knowledge of this but i did more research into this for my slate article about keanu and crossover and and you know how george michael became so popular with black audiences he really had a fairly singular place in the pantheon of 80s white stars who crossed over Mm. if you want to position the spectrum this way on one end you have tina marie who is a white singer the ivory queen of soul as she's called who frankly was more popular with black audiences than she was with white audiences she had you know like one big hit with you know top 40 radio lover girl and everything else were these enormous hits at r&b radio on the other end of the spectrum you have folks like hall and oates you have madonna you have Phil Collins. These are all people who were appreciated by black audiences, by R&B radio programmers, and would occasionally scrape the top 10. In the case of Hall & Oates, I Can't Go For That was a number one R&B hit, but not with the consistency that George Michael had. And only Faith 
actually topped both the pop and black albums chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was number one for about a month on the black albums chart in 1988, right as One More Try, the fourth official single from the album, was also topping the R&B chart. That's remarkable, and that's singular. I mean, you know, later on, you have British acts like Lisa Stansfield at the turn of the 90s, mm-hmm. who are, you know, white stars who cross R&B, but not... Uh, with the depth that George Michael had, he right. he has a fairly singular place and not unlike say Tina Marie with simultaneous white pop crossover. It's, it's remarkable in his case. I think Tina Marie um, was accepted sort of as a black artist, even though we knew that she wasn't a black artist. I think right. a lot of that had to do with her association with Rick James. Right, right. So he mm-hmm. gave her the cred that she might not have otherwise had. I don't think mm-hmm. uh, George Michael necessarily sounded like uh, like a black soul singer, but he had those sensibilities. To be fair, even though he had a lot of play on black radio, I listened to George Michael and this album most on Kiss FM here. Mm. Um, huh. in, in my drive to work, and I was working downtown then, I would listen to Kiss FM for whatever reason. I, I went through some sort of mod phase. I don't know, whatever. You know, we'll mm-hmm. just think back to our youth, the silly shit that we did then. <laughs> but at the time, yeah, right. I would bounce back and forth because LA radio was great then and had choices. And Kiss FM was sort of banging. Then you'd hear all, all sorts of music. And to be clear for non-LA people, Kiss was the top 40 station. It was. And they played this album out. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Father Father Figure got played out. It was great to hear it on the radio. Greater to see some of the songs on this album, the videos. And we can talk, I'd love for us to talk a little bit about the videos because MTV helped to make George Michael a big, big. This is when I started to see him as a star, like a big star. These videos for this album. From father figure to I, I want, want your sex, sex. Woo, right? We should talk about I want your sex. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit because we talk about all the time on this show. I grew up churchy, and certain things I wasn't allowed to. So I didn't right. watch this for the first time at my house because I couldn't. I went to a friend's house, and so I was like, "Oh, you know, it's going to be cool over there. Her mother's not going to care, right?" And so we, <laughs> <laughs> and her mother didn't care, and we saw I want your sex, and we were like, "Oh." My God, it was a revelation. Not only was it sexy... Um, provocative. He was saying some things about monogamy that I think went over people's heads because no they mm-hmm. they were s- sort of attached to what they thought was debauchery. But I think he was making mm-hmm. a strong point. Yeah. Um, George Michael established himself as not only am I sexy, but my girlfriend is sexy. Like yep. I'm living a sexy life out here right now. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about how the video was received because some people had problems with it. Uh, it, a lot of people I, had problems. With yeah, it. yeah, it was a revelation to yeah. me. It was a revelation to a lot of people. Um, this, uh, what was I, 15-year-old included? Um, 
So <laughs> I Want Your Sex is the lead single of Faith. Uh, by the way, a little detail for those who care. Uh, does anybody remember the movie soundtrack that I Want Your Sex was originally on? It's the almost Beverly Hills today. Cop. Is it Beverly Hills Cop? Two. Exactly. Yeah, the Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop, Cop 2 yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. So very savvy move. It's put on that soundtrack. Yeah. And during the summer of 1987, that's actually how it's promoted is coming from the, the Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. So a four ordained hit soundtrack with several hits on it. And I Want Your Sex is the biggest one. Peaks at number two on the Hot 100. The reason why number two is a little important to get t- slightly nerdy for a minute, but this is important vis-a-vis what Morgan is talking about. The Hot 100, the Billboard Hot 100 blends now three things because streaming exists, but back then it blended two things, radio airplay and sales of songs. If it had been up to sales alone, I Want Your Sex would have been a number one hit. It peaked at number two because a number of radio stations were very leery of playing it. And it must be funny, frankly, when modern audiences listen to it that, wow, that was considered super risque. But for the time, that was hot fire. Like that was a record that was too hot for certain radio stations to play. Uh, on one radio station uh, that I heard, a top 40 station in, somewhere in the Northeast at the time, uh, they actually did a loop of the line, I want your love. And I yeah. read in Billboard yeah. at the time oh, that yeah, yeah. they, I want your love. They yeah, just repeated yeah. that no, no, line yeah. over yeah. and over again. There was no I want your sex in that cut. Wow. And that was how some radio stations managed to, as they say in the radio biz, day part the song. Something yeah. you could play in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, so it, it was only like a number five airplay record and a number one overwhelmingly like platinum selling single. Um, but it couldn't have been a more, to your point, Morgan, night and day contrast to the George Michael we remember from say, wake me up before you go, go. Um, we should probably also talk about the fact that George Michael was very much, and I talk about this in my podcast, straight identified yeah. and yeah. presenting as straight at yeah. this time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, and even within the span of faith and its singles, you almost see him wrestling with this. But mm. I want your sex. He says, I can't wait much more, girl. Yeah. You know, he's talking to a girl. There's boys you can trust. There's girls that you don't. He's right. having it both ways. But by and large, he's presenting himself as straight. And it, a little controversy isn't bad for business. And it, <laughs> it, it was a signal to the marketplace. This is not the wham George Michael you knew. Yeah. Yeah. And a little bit and and to me he also presented himself as a little bit mysterious because yes. that was the introduction of the shades. It was the five o'clock shadow and the shades. And almost all the videos from this album are all in these deep blues and black and white, which I think was something big in the eighties. But yep. there's a very muted, you know, set back George Michael that I'm like, you're open and you're closed. But I bought mm-hmm. him as this sort of like um, movie star, sex symbol, and I mean, he looked good in the videos, if I can be honest about that. He looked good. The girls in the videos looked oh, good. Yeah. I mean, he started surrounding himself with supermodels, mm-hmm. which was a thing. Right. And right. so I think he cast himself um, as a sex symbol, to your point, presented as straight and was accepted yeah. as, as straight at the time. We will revisit some of this right after we get back from a break. After you take a listen to some of our other fine Max Fun podcasts, keep it locked. Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible. 
break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break, I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now, an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose The Billionaire's Marriage Valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant Paradise. (laughs) Okay, next we need a protagonist. So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian, Mario. (laughs) And of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven, sometimes you got to raise a little hell. (laughs) That's the tagline! Check out Story Break every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. How does this sound? A weekend on a beautiful mountaintop in California. You wake up, eat a tasty meal with some new friends, some old friends, maybe the host of your favorite podcasts. After that, it's a couple of inspiring classes, spectacular podcast tapings, a hilarious stand-up showcase, a dance party, and more. And s'mores! All of this can be yours at Max FunCon, returning to Lake Arrowhead next June. Tickets go on sale Friday, November 23rd. Put that on your calendar because Max FunCon tickets always sell out. Get a head start planning your next summer vacation and go to maxfuncon.com to learn more. We're back on Heat Rocks talking George Michael's 1987 Faith with Chris Malafi. So before we went to break, we're talking about the ways in which George Michael, especially in this era, was very much straight identified and straight presenting, even if there's a little bit of wiggle room that you can kind of find in hindsight. And Chris, in your Hit Parade episode where you talk about both Elton John and George Michael, one of the things that you, the points that you make about Elton John is that him being outed or him coming out really had a negative impact on his album sales, at least in the United States. And for George Michael, we now know far more about his sexuality in the years after Faith, but again, in the late 80s, we just assumed that he was a straight guy. What do you think, and this might be one of those counterfactuals, it's hard to answer, but had he come out, do you think this would have had a, you know, deleterious effect on George Michael's pop stature in the late 80s, given the climate in the U.S. or in the U.K. as a male pop star um, coming out as bisexual or coming out as gay? As you said, we'll never know entirely, but one of the points I made in the Elton John, George Michael episode of my podcast is that the moment in 1976 where in a Rolling Stone interview, Elton John comes out as at the time bisexual, um, really did a number on his album sales for the better part of a decade. Mm. And I, I regarded it as, and many in the industry, I know this, regarded it as the cautionary tale. Mm. Now, 1986-87 is a decade after Elton John has had this moment, but the AIDS crisis is, you know, going full bore. George Michael himself, I, you know, I've now done a couple of stories talking about the, the sexuality of, of certain pop stars. Freddie Mercury is another interesting case. When did they come out? Did they come out at this moment, at, all the way through Adam Lambert in the 21st century? Like, do, you know, what moment do they pick? And you can even point to moments where certain artists will go out of the closet and back into the closet. It's hard to say when George Michael kind of came out to himself. He mm. was actually dating the woman who's in the I Want Your Sex video, sure. Kathy Jung, I believe her name is. And he was almost making up his mind at this moment. Am I fully gay? Am I bisexual? I know I have attraction on both sides. And in one interview I found, he basically revealed much later, this was an interview sometime in the 90s, I, I was afraid of what this might do to my family, what my mother would think mm. if I came out. You know, so there was a lot of personal fear in George Michael's case um, before he felt brave enough 
to come fully out, which which then took, again, the you know, more than a decade. I mean, he doesn't finally, finally come out until 1998 when he, like Elton John, is outed, but frankly, under even more embarrassing circumstances. Yeah, he got caught public, all the way Public up. men's room. Yeah, yeah, he really did. He got caught he really all did. the way up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> real talk. Yeah, real he talk. got caught real all, all the way up. If I could jump in here, because sometimes we like to put the year in context. And so I right. just want to just spend a, just a quick moment talking about what else was going on in 1987. And maybe then you can talk about how faith just surpasses pretty much all that I'm talking about, with, with the exception of a few. So on the hip-hop side in 1987, we've got Kumo D, How You Like Me Now, Paid in Full, Eric B. and Rakim. Mm. We've got Ice-T, Rhyme Pays. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big ticket items on here are Prince, Sign of the Times, and um, as you mentioned, Chris, also MJ's Bad. And then we yes. have Faith, Smack Dab, um, in the middle. Where do you rate Faith in terms of the albums that I mentioned, and especially the big ticket ones? You talked about MJ's Bad and the sales and stuff. But in terms of Prince's Sign of the Times, to you, which is the better album? I know that's bad. Hard to, <laughs> <laughs> bad to ask, hard to ask. We don't want to be sacrilegious against those of the, that have passed on. But which do you think is not- the better album? Yeah, that's not even that hard for me, only because Sign of the Times I often list as one of my all-time favorite albums, period. Okay. So by a couple of hairs, I would say I, Sign of the Times is my ultimate jam among those albums. I mean, I just have loved that album so much for most of my life. Um, but the fact that George Michael was going toe-to-toe with artists like Prince yeah. in 87, and really the comparison to Prince is not even... Uh, unfair because like Prince, George Michael was the kind of guy who could produce a polished, you know, record stem to stern by himself in the studio. As I said before, a lot of faith is self-produced and and played entirely by George Michael. There's even a great comparison you can make between one of the hits, Father Figure, and When Doves Cry. Because famously when Doves Cry, you know, Prince was putting When Doves Cry together in, in 84 and it was only when he realized that if I took out the baseline, the record got even cooler. Mm. That kind of happened to Father Figure. Father Figure is a stripped down record that George Michael originally had an up-tempo beat on mm. and several other synth effects. And basically, the more he pulled out of the record, the better it sounded to him. And suddenly it became this darker, bluesier, r- deeply romantic. It was meant to be romantic either way, but deeply romantic slow jam. Um, and again, the fact that he had the kind of instincts Prince had of no, actually, this record needs less. Yeah, and he and he improved it. Uh, shows where he was at in his creativity at the time. Faith sold twenty five million, but I'm not sure how many sign how many albums Sign of the Times sold. Probably considerably fewer, because by Sign of the Times, Prince has passed the very very peak of his imperial phase, where everything is guaranteed sure. to top the charts. And Sign of the Times is kind of his like pure artistic statement he's broken up the revolution he's you know putting together this double album you know so i think prince is on to some new shit at that point and you know in a a somewhat different place i would say though that george michael in the time between wham and the wham breakup and this solo album he'd been paying attention to parade he'd been obviously paying attention to purple rain and He'd also been to pick to talk about some former Prince associates. He'd been paying attention to what Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had been mm. doing, yeah. particularly with Janet's 1986 blockbuster Control. Control. Yeah, you can you can hear bits of that all over Faith. 
The only album you didn't mention in your list uh, that was huge in 87 that I would mention, and I only bring it up because it actually blocked George Michael at one point, is um, U2's The Joshua Tree, which was the top seller of the year. And the only reason that's important is that... uh, when uh, I Want Your Sex in the summer of 87 peaked at number two, the record it got stuck behind was the second number one hit from the Joshua Tree. I still haven't found what I'm looking mm, for. Mm. But but so you two are kind of at their peak. Uh, Michael Jackson is making that enormous comeback. Whitney uh, with the second album that, that, just yeah, yeah. titled Whitney. Yeah. That's 87. That explodes out of the gate, debuts at number one in the summer of 87. I think he's paying attention to what, you know, artists like her are doing at this point. It, it's it's this record that synthesizes a lot of what's going on in American pop at the time. I just love that Chris can pull these things just straight out of the air. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> this, this is my party trick. What can I tell you? On this tip about the relationship between the two, am I crazy in thinking that One More Try sounds a lot like Nothing Compares to You, or actually, I guess vice versa, because the Sinead O'Connor mm-hmm. version of Nothing Compares to You comes out a couple years after One More Try. It's been seven hours and fifty days since you took your love away. I've had enough of danger. Chord progressions seem really, really similar, and I don't know if that's just a pure coincidence or if there's a deeper history there. It might be a coincidence. I wouldn't put it past somebody as plugged in as George Michael to have heard the original version, which was The Family, I believe, that Prince recorded with that side project. Um, but it, it's it's probably a coincidence. What I find fascinating about One More Try, first of all, it's the record that tops both the pop and R&B charts. It was the, I guess, fourth official single, not counting the the twelve inch remix of, or the twelve inch release of Hard Day. Uh, it's the third number one hit after Faith and Father figure, um, and it's the moment when George Michael has fully crossed over. It's also, according to you know, colleagues of mine, maybe the moment, and this is not necessarily the first moment that George Michael is wrestling with his own sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a colleague and friend of ours, Al- Oliver's in mind, uh, Alfred Soto, uh, wrote a wonderful article for Billboard right after George Michael died in late 2016, talking about George Michael's relationship to his own sexuality. And he basically calls one more try the gay Maggie May, particularly that line, <laughs> teacher, there are things that I don't want to learn. And unlike Maggie May, which is somewhat more precocious and fun loving, the, the Rod Stewart song from the early 70s, this is a very you know, spiritually tormented, almost gospel like record mm-hmm. uh, that the George Michael is is tearing his heart out singing. Uh, it's quite long. I believe it's over five minutes, even in the version they played on the radio. They they I mean, I was there and alive then. And I remember that if you heard it one more try on the radio, they played the whole thing uh, and uh, it nothing else on the radio. Not to invoke the title of nothing compares to you, but nothing else on the radio in, in early 88 really sounded like one more try.
Normally, we would ask about Sleeper Jams off this album, but I know both of you actually want to talk about some of the remixes that uh, came out of this LP. Shep Pettibone remixed one of my favorite songs on this album, which is Hard Day. Yep. And um, I, m- my friend had it on, on a record, and I just love the long intro. Can you talk a little bit about Shep Pettibone's influence around this time? I only know him for this, and I think he did a Whitney Houston remix. It was for So Emotional. Yeah, that's the remix that I remember. But talk a little bit about Shep Pettibone, his, his run in the 80s of, as a remixer. You're right that he's at an absolute peak at this point. Shep Pettibone's uh, sound as a, a DJ, producer, remixer, uh, in the mid-'80s, he was the king. Um, he touched on so many different artists. Uh, he you know, remixed some, some Pet Shop Boys records, everything from West End Girls to Hard and Left to My Own Devices. He, and on, on the Hard Day remix, it's, it's Shep Pettibone at his absolute peak. It's it, by the way that it was a it was a bonus track on the CD and cassette, not on the vinyl, and it really banged. It's kind of like he brought out key elements uh of the record and uh almost turned it more into a chant uh which which made it a banger. Um and it, it when I listen back to that now with 30 years hindsight, I I hear that Chef Pettibone remix and I think this is him at his absolute peak. This is yeah. him doing what he does. It was just kind of a natural uh, sound for him at the time. Morgan, you've been saying how Faith is just one of your all-time favorite albums. So let's get into this. What is the fire track for you off this LP? No pressure. The whole thing is just an entire banger to me. Because of all the things that Chris said about Shep and and the things that I said about that remix, um, Hard Day is a jam. It's so long. I think it's like nine minutes long. (laughs) And that's what I'm used to. Give me a nine-minute track. The build to that song, it's funky. His voice, it's just like a, it just comes in like a phantom. I love that song. I think when people mm-hmm. think about Faith, they won't think immediately of Hard Day as being the fire track. But you asked me what mine was. Yeah, yeah. And that, for me, is it. Also like um, kissing a fool because like because he's it's jazzy yeah, George Michael yeah. and I didn't know he had that in his pocket. This was before um, songs from the last century, so I didn't know he was going to get to a jazz album. But at the time, right, I was like, man, he could do anything. His voice just has he's got range, he's got style. Um, I keep going back to the word sexy, but even the arrangement of his vocals, he just rolled the jazz beat. So I love kissing a fool. Kisses and lies So
I'm actually really glad you mentioned that because even though Kissing a Fool to me is it's not a conventional fire track in terms of it's not remotely up tempo because it's basically a torch song. Unlike the two of you, I actually never really liked Faith that much. And in revisiting it, I confirmed I still don't really like this album very much. And this is a whole longer thing about I just never could get into a ton of Wham! songs. And George Michael's, at least this era of George Michael, I wasn't that into. Freedom 90 is a different story, but again, also a very different album. Um, shout out to James Brown, Funky Drummer Samplings, which I think <laughs> went a long way to why I like Freedom 90. But with this album, it was never the big, big radio hits that I gravitated to. Um, I'm okay with Faith. Uh, I Want Your Sex is something that I would switch the channel on, and I just detest it and still to this day detest Father Figure on so many levels. But, wow, really? But I love the slowest slow jams on here in terms of One More Try, I think is great. And Kissing a Fool was for a, what this was, how old was I back then? A 15-year-old's kind of like angsty, love-struck ballad. This was sort of the song that I would listen to when I wanted to get into my feels. Mm -hmm. And and to your point, Morgan, it's not a side that I would have expected from him to be able to kind of pull this out of the woodwork. So, Chris, let's slip it to you. For you, what is your fire track off this album? Well, I'm almost sheepish to say this, given what you just said, Oliver, but my fire track, and it has been for quite some time, is actually Father Figure. Okay, leave. Just get out. Get out. I know. I know. Okay, bye. Um, I love Father Figure. I love how unusual it sounds. Uh, I love how it manages to be a ballad, but a bit of a jam at the same time. It's it's got some tempo to it. It's ethereal. Look, I can Im- imagine what about it you really did not like. <laughs> There's something about the, the the lyric and the the, the creepy, uh, you know, metaphor. Yeah, right. Put, put I'm your sure tiny hand in well. mine. It's yeah. tough. Yeah, Come on, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Wrong. I feel you. No, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah, I feel but, you. But but the the tone and the the atmosphere of that that record, uh, I. I even sang it one time in karaoke and was surprised how fun it was to sing in karaoke. I will not recreate that for you here. Um, you know, and it's a sturdy melody. Um, it's been sampled. Uh, PM Dawn turned uh, that yeah. song into an entire hit for yeah, them, yeah. Uh, looking through patient eyes in, in the mid-90s. Um, so, But like Morgan, I mean, I am a lover of this album, and uh, it's hard for me to pick just one. Uh, I'm glad you guys both mentioned Kissing a Fool. That really shows the album's versatility. By the way, there was a last single release from the album. It was a top five hit. Mm-hmm. Picture a world where in late 88, early 89, a song that sounds like that is on top 40 radio, and it was. Uh, I do love One More Try. I love, love, love Hard Day. I mean, it's probably a tie between Hard Day and Father Figure for me, but uh, there are so many jams on this record. I wanted you to talk a little bit about Hand to Mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like to me that he's talking about the cycle of poverty and violence um, in the States. Did Mm -hmm. I miss it? No, I don't think you did. I think that's exactly what it's about. I think it's um, it's a very empathetic song because I think it's it's George Michael, as he had done in previous tracks, um, like Everything She Wants in the mm-hmm. Wham Days, he's sort of envisioning him in the shoes of someone else. There's great empathy for, for women on uh, a couple of these records. And uh, L- Look at Your Hands, which is another one of the non-single album cuts. Um, it's got some really spiteful lyrics but 
it at the same time expresses some amount of, of sympathy for, you know, a beset woman's plight. Those two records, Hand to Mouth and Look at Your Hands, come back to back on the record. And I see them as two sides of the same coin, sort of George remembering his younger days. And, you know, he came he did not come from a broken home, George Michael, but he's definitely seen some shit and um, growing up as he did. Uh, and I see those records as being very open hearted and empathetic sure. uh, and, and, and thoughtful. It's, you know, it's the closest thing you have to some Rhythm Nation tracks on mm. an album that comes out a year or two before Rhythm Nation. I'm wondering, Chris, if there's a song off of this album that you think could play in 2018 and mm. be covered uh, and tackled by a contemporary artist, what would you choose off of here and who would you want to see try to take it on? I was thinking about this. It's hard because a lot of the singles on this album are so well produced and of their time that it's a little hard to picture how they would be remade, although several have been, Faith in particular, uh, has been remade several times. Um, it's been remade by um, everything, everyone from Limp Biscuit, uh, the you know agro metal band, to Estelle. I have not heard that version, and and I pray I never have to. Yeah, you really you you can just picture that in your head. Oh my and god! Yeah, it was it was a sizable MTV hit for them, Limp Biscuit. Believe it or not. Mm. And then Estelle uh, turned Faith into uh, one of the follow-up tracks on the same album uh, she scored, American Boy. She essentially sampled and remade Faith and basically turned it into uh, her minor hit, uh, No Substitute Love, which was a follow-up to American Boy. So Faith has had several lives. Kissing a Fool feels like George Michael writing a standard. Um, I looked 100%. this up. It, yeah. it was it was actually remade by Michael Bublé on an <laughs> album at sometime in the last 10 years. You can totally picture that. Exactly. Uh, it's a little obvious. It's a little on the nose. But yeah. if anybody was going to make it now, Michael Bublé makes sense. But I would kind of love to hear a woman take it on. There's something where the gender really doesn't matter on that record, and right. and a woman I think could bring something new to it, and I would love to hear what that would sound like. You are when I could have been your star, you listen to people who scared you to death, and from my heart, strange that I was wrong enough to think you. Chris, with faith, was this album right on time, ahead of its time? Or timeless? It was mostly right on time. Mm. It feels very of its moment in the best sense, in the sense that it is synthesizing everything that's going on in late 80s pop and R&B. It is such a, uh, a snapshot of that moment in popular music. Yet, 
I would say there's a lot about this album that's timeless. You can't, you know, deny the irresistibility and the craft, the sturdiness mm. of this record. Um, when George Michael passed in 2016 on Christmas Day, uh, the outpouring of grief and appreciation for him, obviously it had to do with the entirety of his, his career, whether it was the Wham! days or, as you mentioned, tracks like Freedom 90 from Listen Without Prejudice and so forth. But faith is the crux of that love, that admiration that other artists in particular had for George Michael, his songwriting skill, his production skill, his ability to produce a total package with right. his records. So that, that's the part of this album that I would say is, is somewhat timeless. If you had to describe faith in three words, what would those three words be? I'll be a little alliterative. How about this? Go for it. I like alliteration. Autonomous, autobiographical, accomplished. So slick. I like it when our writers come come with it on this one. <laughs> I came prepared with that. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks featuring our special guest writer and podcaster, Chris Melanfi. Be sure to check out his monthly, well, I guess it's now more than monthly, but primarily no, monthly say, Hit Parade. Primarily monthly, that's yes, fine. Uh, podcast Hit Parade, which, as I mentioned, on the front end, you will get one of the, just the best music history, pop chart history lessons every time you tune in. Chris, where can folks find you online? They can find me on Twitter at C Melanfi. And uh, I always love hearing from folks and uh, appreciate the, to use Morgan's phrase, tweezies and retweezies. So. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Morgan Rhodes, and Oliver Wong. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. What up, Thess? Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Oliver, and Christian Duenas. Our booking manager is Shana Deloria, and today's episode was engineered and edited by Christian. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and exec producer, Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. And that's where we will post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything that you heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. We also wanted to thank all of our social media family out there, including Buddy Peace. Thank you so much for a very, very cool and detailed breakdown of what Heat Rocks podcast is and what it's about. We also want to thank Patrick Miller. We want to thank KK Bracken. We want to thank Jay of the McTweeties. Okay. Shout out. We want to thank Dr. Glover. Nick Liao, we want to thank Peter McLennan, we want to thank Eden, and finally, we want to thank Violence Jones. We do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. One last thing, here's a teaser for next week's episode featuring L.A. music writer Jeff Weiss talking about Draco the Ruler's 2017 album, Cold Devil. What's interesting to me is because his style is so singular and original. You know, when you have such an original flow, sometimes it's like, well, I studied this person. I mean, we talk about Kendrick Lamar, right? It's kind of the rapper that like you know it's probably is a reasonable choice for the best rapper of this decade for sure okay and right. um definitely in the short on the short list no matter who who right. you are you have to agree with that yeah but kendrick you can tell studied eminem he studied dmx he studied definitely studied little wayne like very heavily and then kind of he took all these things and made it his own thing corrupt you know like def tupac obviously but draco i asked him you know who did you listen to growing up because i figured like sugar free or e40 or something because yeah, those yeah. were the most logical right yeah and uh, he was like, no, not really. Like, he's like my brother, Ralphie, who's in the Stink team, listened to Sugar Free. But he just, it just kind of like, you know, I think in one of those stories, it was kind of like 
you know, the, the story of like Athena, you know, coming out just fully formed. It's just it's like a style that just kind of like a mutation inside his own head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.